Judges. Judges. Part 13 of our journey through the book of Judges is about to begin. And we begin in chapter 8, verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim, that is, one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Remember, there's no tribe of Joseph. He had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so Ephraim, you could say, is one of the tribes of Joseph. And the men of Ephraim said to him, him being Gideon, What is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. You didn't call. And they accused him fiercely. So that's the tone right out of the gate. They accused him fiercely. Understand what has been happening up to this point. The story begins in chapter 6. For seven years, Israel is mistreated by Midian, the Amalekites, and the peoples of the east. For seven years, because Israel decided to go rogue, Israel decided to turn their back on God, and God raises up this foreign nation to oppress them. And they do. They oppress them. The Midianites are going to be very much like these schoolyard bullies who just come and steal their lunch money all day long. In fact, when we first meet Gideon, you may remember, he's threshing out the grain, and he's doing so in the wine press. An activity that's typically done outdoors is done indoors because he's afraid that if the marauding Midianites see him, they'll just take whatever he has. So that is very much the setting. And remember, God calls Midian, and Midian goes with 300 men, and with 300 men he puts to flight an army of tens of thousands in chapter 7. An army that has absolutely zero chance of winning puts to flight an army that has a 100% chance of winning, and that's really only possible with God's help. It's exciting. For, for seven years they've been mistreated. Seven years they've been under the oppression of the Midianites, the Amalekites, the peoples of the East. For seven years, you would expect now, after victory's been secured at the end of chapter 7, this would be in a time of high fives and hugs and celebrations and parties and feasts. Not that. Not that. Gideon's getting his tail chewed out. Instead of celebrating, Ephraim is upset. They're upset. They, they accused him fiercely, the text tells us. It's a head-scratcher a little bit. What in the world? But some of you, you, you know people like how they're acting. Some of you, sometimes you may struggle with that, right? Ephraim, they're, they're like the person who they... It doesn't matter. They can find something critical to say about anyone or anything. I've had to check myself at times. But that's, that's Ephraim, right? Things should be going swimmingly. Nope, they're going to have a problem. They're going to have something nasty to say. They're going to have something negative to say. That is them, right? And this should be a time of celebration, right? It should be like, hey, we won the Super Bowl. And instead, there's that one guy, right, who goes to the coach, and he's like, so you played like Brady the whole game, and I only got to play part of it. It's like, yeah, that's because he's Brady, but, you know, whatever. That's, that's Ephraim right here. This should be a time of great joy. They've been oppressed for seven years. But they're mad. They're mad. They're upset. They, they wanted to play a bigger role. They wanted to be more important. I remember there was this guy, it was like five years ago, and he told me, 
I can't properly worship God unless I get to be up there on Sundays. And I said, well, what do you mean? I, I just have to be serving God. I'm like, well, oh, well, that's okay, because, you know, there's going to be other opportunities where if you're not up there on Sunday, you'll have other, you know, things to do. You know, you could help with child care, or you could help with signs, or, you know, whatever. There's, there's things to do. He's like, no, 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 I, I've got to be up on the stage on Sundays, otherwise I can't properly worship God. Like, Are you joking? Like Ephraim, right? What's their problem? I want to be more important. I want to play a bigger role. I want to play a more prominent role, as we'll see in the next series of verses. It's not that they didn't have any role. They had a role. They just wanted to be bigger. They wanted to be more important. And they're complaining. They're complaining at a time when you think, why would you complain in the first place? It's like, we just won the Super Bowl, right? We just have this huge, huge like thing happen that it could only happen unless God was in it, and they're complaining. They're complaining. Well, he got to do more. She got to do more. What about me? That's them. And unfortunately, that's a lot of people in the church today. Well, they accuse him, the text says, fiercely. Fiercely. They are mad. But notice Gideon's response. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizer, my clan? Remember Gideon, that's the clan. You get the 12 tribes of Israel. Inside each 12 tribes, there's subgroups or clans. So your grape harvest, way better than our grape harvest. Then he goes on to say, verse 3, God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. It subsided. The, the word literally is, it means that like they relaxed. Good night. But certainly, some admirable things to, to, to look here. Uh, this is the story where Gideon goes from hero to villain, but before he gets to the villain point, before he gets to full-on villain, certainly I think some admirable qualities about his life here. He's really following the, the proverb that's yet to be written that would say a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Someone's angry? I know, the temptation, right? To say something that's just, you know, it's just going to stir things up, brother. Gideon is really, I think, at his diplomatic best here. He's like, listen, your grape harvest compared to my, my people's grape harvest, it's like nothing. And furthermore, you guys got the real trophies, Oreb and Zeb, the enemy commanders. And at that point, Ephraim takes a deep breath. Once again, the, the issue that they're complaining about is not that they didn't have a role in these operations. It's just that they wanted a bigger role, right? I want to help serve. Cool, we need this. No, 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 no. I want to be up here so everybody can see me and know how awesome I am that they all know that I'm in the runnings for Christian of the Year Award. Right? So I've never said that. Yeah, but have you thought it? That's, that's these guys. So Gideon calms them down. Your, your grape harvest is way better than my people's grape harvest. And furthermore, you guys get the real trophies. Once again, they were involved in the operations. They just wanted a bigger role. 
And so Gideon is certainly, I think, at his diplomatic best, certainly illustrating the proverb that, you know, in those moments, gentle answer. You might want to slap him in the face, but I'm telling you, gentle answer is probably going to be better most of the time, usually. And while it's certainly commendable, his diplomatic approach, there's also some concern here. Because in Gideon giving his defense to the Ephraimites, when he's giving his defense, he doesn't say anything about his divine service or empowerment by Yahweh. Back in chapter 6, verse 34 and 35, remember, he tears down the, the Baal altar in his hometown. Everyone wants him dead. His, his dad kind of comes to his defense, and then like a hot minute later, like three verses later, he's like rallying the troops, and the guys that wanted him dead one second are now coming to him, and it seems that the only explanation that they go from wanting him dead to coming and rallying behind him to fight the Midianites is that the Spirit of God came upon him, that it clothed him. But he doesn't mention that here. Say, so, oh, no big deal. But furthermore, you think if he was going to mention anything of significance to the Ephraimites, you think maybe he would say something about God's desire to defeat the Midianites with a minimal force. And that's the whole point of this battle sequence that we learned about last time in chapter 7. Like the whole time, like Gideon is arguing psychologically rather than theologically. It's not that what he said was bad, it's just that there was a lot of important things that he left out. The Ephraimites are upset. He didn't call, right? They want to be a bigger role. Why not tell them God's whole plan in the very beginning in chapter 7? What was the plan? The plan is, is, Gideon, you've got too many guys. And my concern is that when I give victory to you over the Midianites, you guys are going to brag. You guys are going to boast. You guys are going to think that somehow you contributed to your own salvation. And it's just as true a problem today as it was back then. I don't know if the guys in the back have the Edwards quote, because I'd love to throw them on the screen, but if not, I remember it, so I'll tell it to you anyways. Right? You contribute absolutely nothing to your own salvation except the sin that made it necessary, right? So you think, all right, what did I bring to the table? Your sin, that's it. That's all you brought. You didn't do jack. You didn't do anything else. That's it. You contributed nothing to your own salvation except the sin that made it necessary for God to send His Son Jesus on a rescue mission for you. Why? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. So that you won't boast, so that you won't brag, so that you have zero to stand on of your own. What a great opportunity for Gideon maybe to tell the Ephraimites this, because this is their big concern. They're upset he didn't call. They're upset he, they didn't get to play a bigger role. So say, guys, guys, let me tell you, God's, that's was God's concern from the very beginning. He said we had too big of an army. So he told me to tell the first group, listen, if you're afraid, leave. 22,000 men left, two-thirds of his army. He said, you still have too big of an army? Go down to the river, drink from the river, depending on how you drink from the river. Boom, I'm sending the rest of the guys, so you've got 300 guys left. So at the end of the day, when you take on an army of tens of thousands of men, and you beat them with 300 guys, who, oh, by the way, essentially you've got torches, trumpets, and you're just making a lot of loud noise. You say, how is that possible? It's not, only unless God is in it. Tell them that, Gideon. He doesn't say that. It's not that what Gideon says is, is bad or wrong. It's just that it's incomplete. Like, what a golden opportunity to point them toward something very, very important. And, and Gideon just blows this opportunity. He's just arguing psychologically, 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 rather than theologically. If that's their concern, right, tell them what they need to know. Tell them what God said in chapter 7, and he doesn't. All of his arguments are going to be psychological 
rather than theologically based. And this opening story really is going to reveal some very fundamental problems in Israel. We see the fracturing of the unity of the people already. See, on one hand, you've got that group, a group of men back in chapter 7, verse 3, 22,000. He says, if anyone's afraid, you can just leave right now. And they leave. And then on the other hand, you've got the Ephraimites who are mad and offended when they're not called. The, the tribal unity and cohesion of the people of God, crumbling. Crumbling. And then you've got the Ephraimites who are so self-centered, who are just so easily offended. I mean, you sneeze the wrong way, they're upset. I mean, these, these guys always have something critical to say. Everything could be going great. You, like I said, you win the Super Bowl, they're upset because they didn't get as much playing time as Brady. Bottom line, no one's going to get as much playing time as Brady because he's Brady, right? That's, that's the point. But the Ephraimites, man, they've got something to say. They've got something to complain about. They're so easily offended. They're so self-centered. It's just about them. They've got this overinflated estimation of their own significance as a nation. And so even in this really happy occasion, they can't be. Even in victory, Israel is going to remain her own worst enemy. It should be a time of celebration. It should be. And Gideon came to the Jordan, verse 4. Came to the Jordan River and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So we said to the men of Succoth, Please give me loaves of bread to the people who follow me. They are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Ziba. Zalmunah, the kings of Midian. He continues, the narrator really points an emphasis on this. He continues his diplomatic approach. Someone in his position, a commanding officer, uh, given the context of the situation, he didn't need to ask permission. Okay? It would have been totally fine for them to have confiscated and taken you know, the goods they needed to survive, given the, the national crisis that's on hand. This is a national crisis. Okay? You think martial law, like, it would have been totally... Totally legit for Gideon to take whatever he and his 300 men need. Um, the army of Midian is on the run. They are pursuing. They are relentless. And here's the response of the people. And the officials of Succoth said, verse 6, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunah already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? You've got to be kidding me. So Gideon said, Okay. Joe paraphrase. Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmanah into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. You got me? That's how it's going to be? Okay. And when he went up to Penuel, and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Capiche? 
these fellow Israelites are totally reluctant to treat the enemies of another tribe as a threat to oneself. Imagine. You want to feel how Gideon feels right now? You want to feel how infuriating this is? Think 9-11. See the planes flying into the towers. See them collapsing. See people jumping out of the building. See your fellow Americans dead on the streets. And now imagine, alternate ending, some of the Al-Qaeda terrorists survive on the run. The armies of New York and Pennsylvania pursuing into Virginia, into the Carolinas. And then the governor of those states say, when the generals come, yeah, we're not going to help you out. You need a place to stay? Figure it out on your own. You need food? Yeah, we're not giving you any provisions. Why should we? You haven't caught the bad guys yet. We help you? What if they come back for us? That's your problem. You deal with it. Gideon's infuriated right now. And he says, okay. Okay. That's how you want to do it? I'll go get them. And when I come back, I'm going to smoke each one of you guys like a cheap cigar. I mean, he is... You just just imagine how infuriating it is. You're just taunting him. These are their brothers. And of course, this is a problem that, that Moses was concerned about back in the book of Deuteronomy, the Transjordan tribes, that is, the tribes living on the right side geographically or the east side of the Jordan River. Those two and a half tribes, the half tribe of Manasseh, the Rubites and the Gadites, they said, no, 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 Moses, we don't want to go in the promised land. We like this land. It's legit land. It really works for our livestock. Plus, we were involved in taking it, and the battles give us this. And Moses' concern, his reluctance, is that when a day and time would come, and their brothers might need them, that they wouldn't be there to help them. No, 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 we got it, Moses. We'll be there for our brothers. There's this reluctance for these Transjordan folks to treat the enemies of another tribe as a threat to oneself. They don't care. They should. They don't. And Gideon is furious. Furious. So the sequence continues... Verse 10, Naziba and Zalmanah were in Kakor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbaha and attacked the army. For the army felt secure, and Ziba and Zalmanah fled, and he pursued them. And captured the two kings of Midian, Zima and Zalmanah, and he threw all the army into panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's. And he captured a young man of Succoth, an official perhaps, and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold! Ziba and Zalmuna, you guys remember them? About whom you taunted me? Saying, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmuna already in your hands that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson and he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. 
They go, they leave, Sakath and Penuel. They find what's left of the tattered Midianite army. They capture the kings on the way back. They run into an official of Succoth. They question him. He writes down the, the key information, who the leaders are of their town. In the absence of a king, towns in Israel were governed by a body of senior members of the community, usually the heads of the clans. And presumably, having arrived in that town, Gideon gathers all the elders around, and he says, Zeba! Zalmanah. You guys, let me, let me make these introductions. And then he makes good on his promise and he beats them. He beats them. But in his rage, in his anger, and here's the thing about anger. It's the dangerous thing about anger and rage. Anger and rage suffocate self-control. It's a, it can be a very dangerous thing. Anger and rage, it, it, can sell, it can suffocate self-control, and that's exactly that's what's, what's happening here. The narrator simply dumps the information for us, doesn't necessarily make a judgment, so I am. You say, all right, he, he beat those guys, it's pretty treasonous stuff, but then he goes and he actually kills the men of Penuel. And the problem is, is those are fellow Israelites. Maybe this is a Canaanite city, and maybe we justify it. It's hard to justify this it's hard to justify his actions at this point. And at this point, Gideon and his band of 300 men are really evolving into this private army. His war of liberation is now turning into his own personal crusade. This is where Gideon is going to really go from the hero of the story to the villain when we're all done today. And to help us make sense of Gideon, we're going to learn some important information in a moment. 18. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmana, Where are the men who you killed at Tabor? Where are they? Answer me. Just imagine they're tied up. They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. They're, they're trying to flatter him. Just like you, Gideon. They all looked apart. Like the son of a king. And then 19 is going to cue us in about something we have not known up to this point. And he said, Those are my brothers. Those are my brothers. The sons of my mother. And as the Lord lives, if you had saved them, I would not, I would not have killed you. To this point in the story, the Midianites have been pictured to us as this schoolyard bully who have come and taken whatever they've wanted. But now we learn there's a, there's a personal component to this. It's not just that they've come and taken whatever they wanted. They've come and they've murdered people that Gideon knows, his own family members. This is deeply personal. I think it helps us make sense of Gideon's Feelings. The person, Gideon, I said makes sense, not justifies. I think it helps make sense of who this guy is. He's a man who's lost a lot. He's lost family members to these people. Not just his lunch money. Not just his monthly paycheck. He's lost his brothers and his sisters. He's lost family members. He's lost people that he cares about. So he said to Jether, verse 20, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. 
But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. It's a kid. doesn't want to kill him. Then Ziba and Zalman said, Kill us yourselves, you pansy. Joe paraphrased. Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmanah and took the crescent ornaments. That's important. He took the crescent ornaments, that's a mistake, that were on the necks of their camels. So he kills them, tries to have his son do it. His son's just a kid, he's afraid. Even in death, the Midianite kings are... Shaking their fist at him. Kill us yourself, they say. And so Midian is done at this point. It's over. But our story isn't. 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Gideon, rule over us. You and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Well, that's not exactly true. God God saved him. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you, if I may. Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw it, his earrings, into the spoil, and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. It's close to $900,000 worth of gold. Uh, gold's trading about $1,300 an ounce. Probably didn't need to know that, but it's a lot of money. It's pretty valuable. Beside, now here it is, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and beside the collars that were around the necks of their camels, and here's the problem. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. He's killed the kings. He's taken the spoils of war. And he says... In response, the people saying, Gideon, rule over us. You saved us from Midian. He says, no, 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 I can't. Defers to Yahweh. On the surface, back in verse 23, it seems that he has his head on straight. seems that his priorities are as they should. No, 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 no. We're not going to rule over you. We're not going to be your king. Yahweh will be your king. Yahweh will rule over you. On the surface, it seems that everything's just as it should be. But when we continue, we see some problems with this. What leads me to the conclusion that Gideon really only deferred to the Lord in name only. He will be their king. He will rule over them. Despite him saying, oh no, I I couldn't. I couldn't. But one of the early problems that we see is even though he defers to Yahweh as far as the people asking for him to rule over, he doesn't bother correcting their mistaken interpretation of the victory over the Midianites. Look back in verse 22. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Hold on a second, right? Because we know that was like the major point of the last story in chapter 7. I I haven't saved you. It's like me and like 300 Joes. 
We had no chance of saving you against an army of, I don't know, 150,000 guys. Like, we had no chance. We didn't save you. God saved you. He just says, God will rule over you. You see the, the, the problem. The problem for Gideon. doesn't bother correcting their mistaken interpretation. He retains the king's symbols of royalty, the, the crescent amulets, the purple robes formerly worn by these Midianite kings, the, the, the neckbands that were worn by the camels, and then he is going to do something that traditionally only a king would do. He's going to sponsor some sort of pagan cult by crafting this ephod, which it's unclear what it was. In the Old Testament, it would be the, the breastplate for the priest, but it's unclear here exactly what it was. Some type of pagan artifact has been set up in his home city, which leads some commentators to suggest that he may have recreated the very structure, the pagan Baal altar that he tore down back in chapter 6 under the cover of night. But whatever it is, it's pagan. It's not honoring God. And it's going to be a snare for Gideon and the people. They'll whore after it. So despite him protesting, Gideon, we'll see, I think, is going to assume this role of ruling over Israel. And as representative and as the leader of the people, he's going to do what's right in his own eyes. And he's going to invite the people to follow along with him. It's a scary thing to be a leader. All the more reason that leaders lead well. Now he invites them to follow along with him. And then miraculously, God gave the land rest for 40 years. More on that in a moment. Blows my mind. Verse 29. Jerubal, the son of Joash. Interestingly, the author doesn't call him by Gideon. Jerubal, which means let Baal contend for Baal. The son of Joash, his father's name. He went and lived in his own house. Huh. Okay. You read that as I read that, and you think, why does he just say that? That seems kind of like a pointless thing to say. He went and lived in his own house. Well, that's where people go and live. Like, why, why do you need, Mr. Narrator, why do you feel the need to put that sentence in here? Unless perhaps the narrator is thinking of him going and living in his own house, as this word can also be translated, which means to sit on one's throne that is to be a king, that is to reign. See, if it was that meaning, perhaps, and that, that is one of the possible meanings of the word being used here, it wouldn't just be a pointless thing to say because, yeah, that's natural. That's what people do. They go and live in their own houses. But if everything, as I've argued and suggested, is that Gideon really only defers in name only, then this would be very much important to mention. Furthermore, verse 30, Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. His, this, this woman who's a Shechemite, that is a Canaanite woman. Bottom line, this is not something that he should be involved with romantically. This, you know, these are one of the ro romantic relationships. You're like, yeah, that's a bad idea. They'll be like, oh no, but they have so much potential, Joe, you don't understand. Or, you know, I can't leave them, I'm their only Christian friend. Uh, it's just a bad idea uh, to be involved with these type of romantic relationships. Gideon is involved in one of these romantic relationships. 
Uh, his marriage with her represents a, a violation of Moses' absolute ban on all such marriages for Israelites, right? And he names his son Abimelech. Only three other Bible characters that go by the name of Abimelech. None of them, none of them are Israelites, all pagans. He names his son Abimelech. The name Abimelech means the king is my father. The king is my father, which I think certainly heightens and raises the suspicion. I know, Gideon, you said back in like verses 23 that, you know, Yahweh was going to rule over us, but is that, is that actually what's happening? Ah, I think further evidence the fact you see of Gideon's own personal ambition, his own ego right here, naming his son Abimelech, a, a non-Israelite name, a name which means my father is the king. And then we come to the end of Gideon's life. And Gideon, verse 32, the son of Joash died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abizrites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love. That's a covenantal term. Seems like it's a strangely placed there unless Gideon is in fact their leader and their king. And they did not show steadfast love. You would want to show steadfast love, that type of covenantal love, to your leader in allegiance to him. Which, once again, raises suspicion. Right? Does Gideon, he says, no, no, the Lord will rule over us. Uh, I don't think so. I think he essentially says that, and it's only in word only. But bottom line, they're still responsible. We see verse 35. The narrator makes that clear for us. And they did not show, in other words, they should have shown steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. The narrator here, I think, tries to salvage the reputation of Gideon at the end. I, I already called him a villain, so I don't know how much there is left to salvage, but the narrator seems to try to salvage what's left of his reputation here. That Gideon had done good for Israel. And to that, I can't argue. It's right there in the text. He has done good. He has done good. In fact, these final verses actually seem to suggest that while Gideon was living, he actually was like a dam holding back the floodgates. That Gideon, while he was alive, actually inhibited Israel's spore, Israel, excuse me, their spiritual and their moral decline. As unfaithful as Gideon probably was, he was quite possibly probably one of their most spiritually mature people in the nation. Right? And here's a guy who were like, wait, he just... He just built a pagan shrine, possibly possibly rebuilding the one that he tore down in chapter 6. And you're telling me that he might be one of the most spiritually mature people in all the land? But I think that's going to illustrate, right, who the real enemy is. It's never been Midian. It's never been Midian. It's never been the real enemy. When he dies, all restraint cast to the wind. When he dies, the nation runs headlong into apostasy. And so we come to the the conclusion of the story, and it seems that despite 
his formal rejection of kingship, that they had somehow formalized some type of official relationship with him. But the problem is, is Midian's not their, their real threat. And no one seems to recognize that. No one seems to recognize the real enemy. It's not a political party. It's not ISIS. It's not even a certain political issue. Those things are important. I'm not saying they're not. But it's not the real threat. It's not the real enemy. They're not careful here. I mean, it's literally like a hot minute after they've had victory over the Midianites and Gideon's like, yeah, give me all your earrings. I'm going to take uh, the, 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 the loot from war and I'm going to build this pagan shrine. Do you not remember, people, like why you were in this position in the first place? The reason you were in this position for seven years being mistreated was because you turned your back on God. And you hoard after other things to worship. You said, I don't want you, God. The most beautiful of all beings, who's totally beautiful, who's totally glorious, who's totally pure and righteous. No, 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 no thanks. We'll take this instead. That's why they were in the problem and in the position they were in, in the very beginning. And what makes it all the more mind-boggling is the fact that God then proceeds to give Israel rest for 40 years instead of, oh, by the way, I don't know, immediately sending another foreign nation to oppress them? That's what I would have done. I say you do in that, Gideon. Nope. Another nation. Boom. And instead... Gives them, gives them rest for 40 years. Despite Gideon pulling this stunt, unbelievable. Do you see how deep and wide his grace is? They don't deserve it, right? I mean, do, do you see how deep and wide his grace is? That is amazing grace. It's also no justification for us to continue in our sin, to say, oh, well, it'll always be there to catch me, that grace. And so the real question thus becomes is, do you recognize your enemy? Or do you only see the obstacles in your life, the problems, the issues? That's the enemy. Because if that's the case, you're probably going to play into this ill-advised playbook of Gideon. Oh, Kitty and the, the dangers of personal ambition. Be our king. No, that's okay. I, I'll, I'll take a hard pass. You know, but you know, if you want me to, I, I guess, you know, I guess we can work something out, right? We can work something out. There's a danger there to personal ambition. I'm not saying personal ambition's wrong, but man, like, I want to have a conversation with the Lord. You might want to check your heart. Because it can become wrong. It can become a trap for you. Gideon, rule over us. You saved us after all. Well, I can't rule over you, but yeah, you know, I kind of, you know, am a big shot. I'm kind of a big deal. (laughs) That personal ambition, especially when everyone is complimenting you and telling you that you're the Christian of the year and just how ridiculously awesome you are, I mean, that can be dangerous. And so Gideon begins to act like this big shot, as if he achieved with the sword of Gideon the victory over Midian, as if it was Gideon's sword rather than the sword of the Lord. And before long, in those moments, when we chase that personal ambition, when we begin to, you know, 
write checks or body can't cash type of thing and our ego was just exploding. Before long, the danger and the risk that we run is replacing thy kingdom come with my kingdom come. Doesn't take much. I mean, six. I mean, like, we're in chapter eight, chapter six. Gideon was this little pansy who was hiding in the you know the wine press because he didn't want the marauding Midianites to see him and take his uh, grain that he had. I mean, he goes from he goes from pansy to uh, to Mister Big Shot in two chapters. It doesn't take much, and then you're there. Think not me. Yes, you. It can happen to you. And so the real question is: Will you be faithful to God? Or the second he answers your prayer, the second he gives you victory over the marauding Midianites of your life, you forget his great work and you begin to believe the lies of the devil that somehow you contributed to that grand victory and then you turn your back on him and bow down to your private idols. Oh, that we might recognize our true enemy. Oh, that we might be faithful to God especially after he comes through for us, especially after he delivers us. And here's our prayers. Oh, that we would be faithful. Our personal unfaithfulness to God is a huge hindrance to us following him. Gideon, man, he he really needed God. And then once the the Midianites are on the run, doesn't need God so much anymore at that point. We're not a whole lot different, guys. We're not. Which is why we need to be reminded of stories like this constantly. Constantly. The Midianites might be gone, but that doesn't mean you're not in a battle any longer. The devil would want you to think that. This big obstacle in your life is gone. God answered your prayer. How wonderful. Now you can sit back and be at ease. And that's just what the devil would want. You will be at war every day until you go home to be with the Lord. And you need to understand that. You need to think that way. We're not at peacetime right now simply because you've had a great week and God's answered this major prayer request. Praise Him, absolutely. But you're just as much at war as you were before He answered that big prayer request and removed that maybe obstacle that was in front of you. You're not Mr. Big Shot. He's Mr. Big Shot. And so as the team comes, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us that we would not forget. I want to pray for us that we would be faithful to Him. I want to pray for us that He would protect us from our own personal ambition from our pride, for our egotistic mindset that we see depicted both at the beginning of chapter 8 and at the end of chapter 8. So Jesus, we need your help. Lord, your grace, your mercy is so glorious and so terrific it blows my mind at the end of this story that you would bother giving them rest for 40 years because they don't deserve jack and you do (laughs) lord thank you 
for being God. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you are gracious. And I pray that we would not abuse that grace. That we would never say, well, look, they can turn their back on you again and you give them rest for 40 years. I don't want that to be us. I don't want us to continue to skate by on your grace so that sin may abound more and more. Oh, Lord, help us to be faithful to you. Lord, help us to recognize and see who our true and real enemy is. And to know that you're bigger. That yours is the victory. 300 guys. 300 guys against an army of tens of thousands. You give them victory. Help us not to forget that. Help us not to forget those things that you've done for us. And obviously there can't be a bigger thing that you've done for us, that you've saved us, that you, that you saved us from our sins, that you died for us. That we contribute absolutely nothing to our own salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Oh, not even that. Don't let us forget that. Help us to remain faithful. Help us, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. Help us. We pray this in your name. Amen.